Pastor John is beginning a series of three sermons on prayer as modeled by Daniel. And so I invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an interdict, that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the interdict and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and interdict. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the interdict, O king, did you not sign an interdict that any man who makes petition to any God or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no heed to you, O king, or the interdict you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. The name Daniel has three syllables. If you pronounce it, Daniel. And each one of those syllables in Hebrew has a meaning. Dan means judge. A little E sound in the middle is the Hebrew word for my. And El is the Hebrew word for God. And therefore, the name Daniel means God, my judge. Or God is my judge. And it's a great thing to have a name to live up to. To have a name to grow into. And Daniel probably more than anybody else in the Bible, has a name with meaning that he grew into and he lived out. God is my judge, no man. 
God is my judge, not Nebuchadnezzar. To God, I will give an account, not to Nebuchadnezzar, not to Belshazzar, not to Darius. God alone is my judge. My name is Daniel. He's a remarkable man in Scripture, and we want to hold him up for his testimony to us this morning. He lived out this God-saturated, God-drenched perspective on the world in the way he ate, in the way he interpreted dreams, in the way he wrote his book, in the way he prayed. Take the way he wrote his book, for example. This will give us a little uh, background to how we come to chapter 6. Back in chapter 1, if you want to look at it with me, in chapter 1, verse 2, the situation is given us here. It's about 586 B.C., and uh, Nebuchadnezzar has swept into Palestine and has taken captive Israel. And here are the words that Daniel uses to describe this. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Just like that. Like you get a Christmas present you don't like, you take it back to Rosedale, and you put it in your hand, and you give it back. The Lord just took this king, and he handed him back. Just handed him back. He doesn't got him in a hand like, got him in in his hand like a nut, or like a marble. And Daniel talks about the political processes of the world again and again with that God-drenched perspective that we saw a few weeks ago. God did it. God handed this king back. Or consider the way Daniel ate. Remember the story as a young man when they were offered the rich foods and the wine of the king, and he said, no, we won't eat it. Give us vegetables and water, and we will do just fine. And the conclusion of the story was, God gave him learning and skill and all the letters of wit and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams above all the others who came from Israel. Or consider the way he interpreted dreams. He said things like this, There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. In other words, it was a God thing, the way he ate, a God thing, the way God ruled history, a God thing, the way he interpreted dreams. And this morning, the most important thing that I think we should see is that prayer is a way of Daniel's living out his name. Daniel, God is my judge. Nobody judges me with any significance but God. I will pray, I will eat, I will write, I will interpret with God in view. God is my judge, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Belshazzar, not Darius. Now what that meant, very practically for Daniel, was that what God thinks matters more than what anybody else thinks. What God does matters more than what anybody else does. And therefore, prayer is a consulting, what do you think, God? Prayer is an asking, you act, God, before I act. I don't know how to act until you act. In fact, I can't act with eternal significance until you act. And so I want to know what you think, and I want you to do what you have to do. And that's why I pray. His life was built on prayer. And as we enter 1992... 
My heart's desire for us as a church is that we will be like Daniel in this regard and that our church will be built on prayer and that we will say it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about Bethlehem. What matters is what God thinks about the way we worship, what God thinks about the way we lead, what God thinks about the way we give, what God thinks about our building and our processes and our staffing. What matters is what God thinks, not what anybody else thinks. And therefore, we ought to pray saying, what do you think, God? What do you think about this plan? What do you think? And so shape our plans. What do you think about this mission? What do you think about this ministry? What do you think about this new staff edition? What do you think about this budget? That's all we care about is what you think. And that's why we're praying. And I want us to say what matters most is not how I act or Dean or Tom or any of you, but how God acts in this church. Is God acting in the church? And if we believe that God's action is more important than our action, then we'll pray. We'll build our whole church life on prayer and we'll say, you act now, God. Come on, act, 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 perform, perform. You do the work here and we'll just jump on board when you start acting. So that's the way Daniel lived his life. He consulted with God. And he asked God to act. And his life was built on God because he said, my name is Daniel. God is my judge. What he thinks and what he does matters more than what anybody else thinks and does. And he built his life on prayer. (laughs) To get the impact of that, let's remember that he was a powerful politician. He had been made ruler over the whole province of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. And then right here in our text, it says that he was one of three presidents ruling over 120 governors, over 120 districts. This man was a busy, public, secular man of affairs. And sometimes we get the mentality in our heads that prayer is something for monks. People who have lots of time, who aren't involved in the real nitty-gritty downtown Minneapolis kind of world, who don't have secular pursuits to keep the family afloat, they can just pray all the time. That's a very wrong attitude and a wrong way of thinking because Daniel was a man of affairs. He was a secular person. He was extraordinarily busy. He had responsibilities like President Bush. And he built his life on prayer and said, what do you think, God, about these 120 districts and my responsibility here? You act. And he governed his whole life by consulting God and praying because that mattered most. Now, today's text is simply an amazing testimony of Daniel's daring, defiant, disciplined life of prayer. When I read this text that Tom just read, when I read it a few weeks ago, I knew what I wanted to preach on for prayer week. I said, that's it. When I read it, I was just filled to overflowing with desire to be like Daniel, to be courageous to be daring in my prayer life, to be defiant if necessary against powers that be, whether demonic or worldly, and to be disciplined 
I don't want to be a jellyfish. Do you want to be a jellyfish? How many want to be a jellyfish? Raise your hand. Good. Oh, well, she'll, she'll know better later. <laughs> I don't want to be a jellyfish. A jellyfish just rides up and down on the waves of emotionalism. If the wave goes high, the jellyfish might pray. If the wave goes low, the jellyfish doesn't pray. I want to be a dolphin. I want to cut through the waves of emotionalism. If my wave goes down, I want to... I'm not going down with the wave of emotionalism. I don't want to be a jellyfish that lets my prayer life just go up and down, up and down by whatever wind of emotion happens to come over with my most recent mail. Some of which is good and some of which is not good. I want to be a dolphin. Now, I think most of you want to be dolphins too in your life. Not the victim of your circumstances or your up and down emotions, but rather cutting a straight path to God's will. In prayer. Well, that's what I see in Daniel, and it just filled me with desire. Look at his amazing response now to this emperor's forbidding of prayer. Let's get the situation. Verse 2 says that he is one of three presidents over all the kingdom. Verse 3 says, and this is sort of dangerous now, there's an excellent spirit within him and uh, Darius was planning to make him the head over all these others. And the reason I say that's dangerous because when that happens, people get angry at you. They get jealous, they get envious, and that's exactly what happened. The other two presidents and the 120 governors or satraps said, we don't like this guy. He's rising in the heart of Darius and we need to get rid of him. Jews rising to the top again in our secular affairs of all things. And so they devised a way, and they couldn't find any way to fault him except one way. They knew that if they could finger his life of prayer, he would not weasel. If they could just get their hands on his life of prayer and somehow find a fault there. So instead of seeing a fault, they create a law that creates a fault. Verse 7. Whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, here comes the most breathtaking verse on prayer in all the Bible. At least on the life of prayer. Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, then, precisely then, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open, get it, toward Jerusalem, not Babylon. And he got down so that even if they couldn't hear, they could see. On his knees, three times a day, not once, to pray and give thanks before his God as he had done previously. This is amazing. 
there are at least six examples of defiance and daring in this verse that I want to unfold for you. Number one, he did not act in ignorance of the law, but he acted in full knowledge of the law and its consequences because the verse begins by saying, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to pray. There's no accident. When he saw it signed, he went to pray. Now keep in mind here, the future of Daniel is incredibly bright. He's just about to become the leader of the whole of the Persian Empire under Darius. Imagine the rationalizations that must have come to his mind as his heart was saying, shall I pray or not? Well, I could be of so much good to you, God, if I accepted Darius's appointment. Won't I be a more worthy servant alive than dead? And isn't... Um, legalism, praying three times a day, I mean, all this time, a worse sin than expediency? You imagine? And he just said no to all those rationalizations. And he prayed, knowing what the consequences would be. The next one is number two. He did not go to the woods to pray. He went to his house. Now think of this. There's nothing in the Bible that says you've got to pray three times a day and you've got to do it in public. All he had to do to keep obedient to God, presumably, was to go to the woods to pray. Just go to the woods. You don't need to go to your house where they'll be waiting for you. Go to the woods And pray. And he didn't. He went to his house. Number three. He did not go to his secret chamber in his house. He went to the room with windows. Open windows. On the second floor. Open towards Jerusalem. Not Babylon. And he knelt. You see why I call this defiant? He could at least shut the window. You get the point? Daniel was not simply going against the law. Daniel was making a statement. We would call this today a demonstration. This is a civil disobedience demonstration. That's what's happening here. It's so manifestly unfolded for us. He went to his house. He went on the upper floor. He went to an open window. He got down on his knees and he prayed. This is a defiance of Darius. There's an issue here of God's glory at stake. Number four. He did not pray at this open window facing Jerusalem once quick, early before dawn in the morning. He prayed three times a day, every day. Why? Because he would make sure that he was seen. Number five. 
When Daniel prayed, he did not use words that were vague so that a clever defense attorney in uh, Persia could say, well, what he really meant by these words was that you, uh, Darius, should be honored and thanked. Rather, he, it says, he gave thanks before his God. Not to Darius, not to the gods of the Medes and Persians, but to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And finally, number six, he did not change his way of praying when the law arrived. He went and he did what he had previously done, it says at the end of verse 10. Daringly, defiantly, and in his discipline of three times a day, every day. Now, what do you make of this? What do you do with verse 10 in your own life? What impact does it have on you? It was like a sledgehammer to me. And I see four implications for our church, for my life, and probably for yours as well. Number one. Prayer is a legitimate public testimony, and we should seek to use it more and more as God leads. Listen to Jesus' words. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your closet. And shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Hmm. Now, is that an indictment of Daniel? Who went before the open window on the second floor three times a day and knelt? I don't think it is. Jesus was not warning us against our willingness to suffer, he was warning us against our desire for praise. Daniel's public prayer was about to cost him his life. It was not about to win him kudos in Persia. Jesus was saying, not that it's wrong to be seen in prayer, but that it's wrong to want to be seen in order to have the praise of men. Blessed are you when you suffer for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when you let your light shine and men give glory to your Father in heaven because they see your good deeds. But woe to you when you strategically maneuver yourself into a position where you know you will get lots of pats on the back for your long prayers or your gifts. There's a world of difference between praying in public as a statement of the glory of God that might cost you your life and standing on the street corners with a trumpet saying, Hear ye, hear ye, I'm about to be pious. In Daniel's context, the word he heard, and just picture yourself in his situation, there is no law in Moses or any of the prophets that says, Pray before windows with your shutters open on the second floor three times a day. There is none. He was not under biblical law to do this. He bowed before the Lord and he said, there's a command not to pray. I usually pray before the window facing Jerusalem. It will cost me my life to do that today. 
And the Lord said, let your light so shine that they they may see your good works and give glory to me. And then they'll know what your life is built on. See, making decisions today about moral issues and how we respond to them is not a simple thing of just going to the Bible, finding a rule, and then laying it out and doing the rule. It's, It's just not like that. There are principles and many guidelines that are true and infallible in the Bible. But they don't tell you whether to sit in front of the abortion clinic or not. They don't tell you whether to write your congressman or not. They don't tell you whether to have a prayer rally in front of Midwest Health Center for Women. They don't tell you most of the decisions you make every day of your life. You've got to get in touch with God. You've got to become wise enough to discern how in your context His will applies. So my first application here is public prayer is a legitimate witness and we should use it as God leads. Number two, Daniel's prayer was a testimony not just to the glory of the Lord, but to the fact that his life was built on prayer. He was making a statement, not just about God, but about his relationship to God. Had he not prayed, God would be the same. Probably his relationship would have been the same. But one thing would have been different what the satraps thought about Daniel's relationship to God. Oh, I see, when it's dangerous, he doesn't do it anymore. And Daniel knew that his testimony was at stake. And therefore, he got down on his knees on the second floor before the open window three times a day. And he prayed. He lived by prayer. He consulted what God thought, and he asked God to act. Number three, Daniel's prayer was disciplined and regular. When the time for a demonstration came, he didn't have to do anything different than he was already doing. He had disciplined himself for years probably at that window three times a day, and he simply said, will I maintain my discipline or will I forsake my God-given discipline. And he said, I will not forsake it. At the cost of my life, I will not forsake it. I wonder if it strikes you as strange, like it does me, that very few Christians in the American Evangelical Church pray like this. Statedly, disciplined, three times a day. Does it strike you as strange that nobody prays that way these days? Hmm. And I think there are a lot of people who would say, that's real good. Because it shows that we have discovered freedom from legalism. Now, I might believe that. I might believe that. If I saw people who did not have Daniel's discipline as powerful in prayer as Daniel was. But I don't believe it. In fact, as I analyze the American evangelical church today, the creeping legalism that I see is not Daniel's disciplined prayer three times a day. I do not think spiritual discipline is the Trojan horse in which legalism is making its way into Troy, the church. No way, Jose. We are not in a thousand years in danger 
of becoming legalists through spiritual discipline in the American evangelical meet-my-need cushy Christianity. In fact, I think that the kind of legalism that is creeping in today is virtually the opposite of spiritual discipline. It has uh, two sides to its coin. On one side is fear. The fear of anything that comes close to sounding or looking like biblical discipline. Expressed in sentences like, train yourself in godliness. Strive to enter by the narrow gate. Take up your cross daily. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I pommel my body and subdue it. If your right eye offends you, gouge it out. Strive together with me in prayer. Anything that comes remotely close to sounding like such discipline is feared in the new legalism. I can tell by your quietness that you know exactly what I'm talking about. For centuries, the disciplines of the Spirit have marked the great saints, and today they are feared. The other side of the coin of the new legalism is a demand for psychologically correct speech. Not politically correct speech, we all know what that is. Psychologically correct speech. If you don't use certain language to describe morality, ethics, duty, and the commandments of God that are psychologically correct, you are a defective people helper. And do more harm than good. Taboo, a new list of taboos in the legalism that I'm talking about. And the new list of taboos is thou shalt not use must. Thou shalt not use should. Thou shalt not use ought. Thou shalt not use warnings like those who do such things shall not enter the kingdom. This is the new legalism and the new list of taboos. You must not say must. They are simply not psychologically correct ways of talking about reality. The creeping legalism in the American evangelicalism today, I believe, is not the spiritual discipline of Daniel, who prayed three times a day. I urge you to consider whether some of our weakness, rather in cushy, self-indulgent, so-called spontaneous, meet-my-need American Christianity is owing not mainly to bondage to legalistic lists of do's and don'ts, but rather to the fact that we have forsaken biblical discipline. I commend Daniel to you for your consideration. I asked a couple of weeks ago in the Star, could it be that the discipline of Daniel was the reason he had so many powerful, spontaneous encounters with the living God. And the image came to my mind yesterday as I was working on the message of a garden. Could it be that in our lives, there's a garden to be tended? And the garden requires discipline. You've got to get out there and plow that garden whether you like it or not. 
And if you tend your garden, God, in His sovereign and wonderful way, will cause flowers and food spontaneously and freely and powerfully to sprout up in the garden of your discipline. I believe that's the truth. That when we forsake discipline in the name of spontaneity, all we get is bondage to whim. I just hope you'll step back during prayer week of 91 and 2 here at the end of the year and ask, Lord, what new disciplines, Daniel-like, do I need to build into my life? I don't want to be a jellyfish. Jellyfish look like they're free. Because they're not nailed down. And they're not struggling. But they're in bondage to the wind and the waves. Whereas the dolphin, who has to whip his tail, moves where he wants to go. And finds his food. The final application is that prayer is more precious than life. Isn't that remarkable? I don't think Daniel knew that he would be saved from the lion's den. Any more than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew, as they stood before the fiery furnace, that they would be saved when they said, If God does not deliver us, be it known to you, he will, we will not serve your gods. I think that's exactly what Daniel was thinking. If God does not deliver me from the lion's den, be it known to you, O Darius, I will not stop praying three times a day before my open window. And so I pray earnestly for you and for me that as we enter 1992 and as we go into this prayer week, we will be able to say this awesome sentence. You will have to take my life if you want to take my prayer. It is a more serious prospect to be prayerless than to lose my life. If you can't say that right now, may the Lord grant you to be able to say it before the week is over. I will give up my life before I give up my prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I long to be more like Daniel, more courageous, more daring, more defiant if necessary, more disciplined, more God-drenched in my perspective on the world. Oh, Father, make us like this at Bethlehem. And make your church worldwide more like Daniel. Grant us, I pray, in this prayer week to meet you the way Daniel met you again and again. Father, as the prayer teams stand here at the end of the service, ready, anointed, filled with spiritual gifts and faith, draw people out of this congregation to come and ask for help in prayer. You know the needs that the people have brought this morning. Grant, I pray, that a deep sense would rise in their hearts right now as I pray to avail themselves of the awesome gift of being prayed for. Put us together in the mornings at 7. Put us together New Year's Eve. Put us together Friday night. 
And every moment of the week, put us together with you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.